Today on Radio Survivor, an update on the rough year 2016 is turning out to be for small and medium-sized internet radio stations. Matthew Lassar joins us to add to our ongoing commemoration of the 1996 Telecom Act, now 20 years old. Turns out the act's author in the Senate was an enormous foe of public radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In the 90s, he was turning up the heat on the CPB, and the most extreme programming at Pacifica Radio was adding fuel to the fire. Started thinking, how can we encourage Pacifica Radio to more centralize its broadcasting decisions so that there will be less programming that the Republicans can use to attack us with? Paul digs into the rumors of SoundCloud's imminent demise. Short version, don't believe everything you read online and always, always, always back up your work. And finally, on College Radio Watch, Jennifer picks up the story of the highs and lows of student radio at Haverford College, where they've been on and off the air for over 90 years. It's no different now, really, than when it first started. Like, they they just keep finding the most appropriate way to reach students. But there's still enthusiasm and excitement for the idea of radio. It's just in a different form My favorite different form was from the 30s, when the radio club offered free wireless messaging to anywhere in the world for student and alums. It's a jam-packed show. Stay tuned. Welcome to Radio Survivor. This is the show, of course, about radio, but we think it's radio that matters. Radio by real people for their communities, from podcasting, community radio, college radio, to internet radio. It's the kind of stuff that makes you want to listen, is inspiring, maybe occasionally maybe occasionally pisses you off, <laughs> but we want it to exist. We think it's important, and that's why we talk about it here. My name is Paul Reismandel. I'm one of your hosts and producers. Hello, I'm Eric Klein. I'm the other host and producer of Radio Survivor. And uh, a, a big topic for today's show is about something which impacts a segment of internet radio and uh, whether or not stations can continue to exist. And we've right. been talking about... We're back again to the big story of 2016. I know. I wish it weren't the big story of 2016. But uh, yes, we're back again uh, to talk about uh, the copyright royalties for music. So we'll break it down. That is definitely one of the main topics. Right. So small and medium-sized webcasters are faced with um, a, a much bigger price tag for playing music on the internet. And uh, it, it came as a big surprise at the end of 2015 that this is what, in fact, was going to take place. And the result has been huge for, yeah, for it's been huge. medium and small webcasters. Yeah, indeed. And uh, also on today's show, we will uh, hear from Matthew Lassar, um, sort of, I think, finishing up kind of what's been a three-part series about the 20th anniversary of the Telecom Act of 1996, which really rewrote... Radio, which utterly changed the landscape. Two episodes ago, we talked with Christopher Terry, who is at uh, University of Wisconsin in uh, Milwaukee, and he discussed the impact on commercial radio, where I think it's been most obvious. In our last episode, we talked to Professor John Anderson from Brooklyn College, who discussed really sort of the popular uh, revolt, if you will, right. against it, uh, and, and how it resulted in both uh, an uptick in pirate radio and how citizens also began engaging more in the in the legal and legislative the process in D.C. and it also eventually kicked off low power FM. And now uh, Matthew is going to add some of his thoughts, and we'll hear from him a little bit later. Yeah, in the he, show. he he has a little uh, uh, an additional perspective on how the 1996 Telecommunications Act 
uh, came about, what was going on politically as far as uh, some of the community radio landscape, how how it impacted there. So Yeah, right. Putting it in, into some perspective, I think, that is very relevant to the topics yeah. that, that we discuss here. And then we'll also get part two of Jennifer Waits, our college radio correspondent, yeah. her history of Haverford College's radio station. Um, and this will be going live uh, the same day that she is giving her talk at Haverford College about the the great history of their radio station. So if you missed part one, I really want to encourage you to go listen to episode number 34, where she gave the first half of the story, and she's yeah, going to finish that up for us today. It was really a very unique college radio station. It happens to be her alma mater. But if it wasn't her alma mater, one has to wonder, maybe Jennifer is such a huge college radio person because she happens to have gone to Haverford, and Haverford had such an incredible history of college radio that she was able to dig into. Uh it, uh, founded in 1923 by the students there, which is a really long time ago for yeah, college radio. Indeed. I, you know, it's sort of like the first pizza theory. There's a theory amongst people who, amongst pizza lovers. Oh, right, right, yeah. That, that really the first pizza you have is the kind of the one that locks into your head, right? So you have people who fight this about- This is because you're from Chicago that you bring No, it's because I'm from New Jersey. Right, okay. And then spent time in Chicago. It's, right, right. So you get the, the battle between the New York style slice versus the Chicago stuffed versus, you know, St. Louis style or Quad City style right. pizza, right? So Jennifer's first pizza was- was, was it Haverford College? College? Right. My first radio experience uh, was at uh, Trenton State College, right. is now the College of New Jersey, WTSR. And that was not nearly as old as Haverford's station. By the time I went there, it had been on the air for uh, going on about 30 years, which is still a pretty good pretty good run, um, but a very uh, highly powered station for, uh, for New Jersey because it's a small state. But anyway, it really did imprint me, and that's – yeah. You know why I'm still here. I, I'm going to be a KPFA pizza lover for, <laughs> for, for quite some time. Let's not talk about what KPFA pizza looks like. <laughs> it serves a large community of yes. amazing people. There you go. It's in, a big, in the Northern big, California big, big Bay area. pizza. That's yeah. great. I like that. that. That's a wonderful way to put it. Well, let's turn our uh, attention to uh, the exciting world of royalties. So this you're we're talking about it again uh, for what is it like the fifth time on this podcast something like that but because there is uh, news. new news that is broken so uh, we already talked about why it's important yeah small and medium sized webcasters have to pay a lot more money to stream the music if they are a commercial operation no matter where their revenue comes from no matter whether or not they have revenue at all. Yeah, so that was a big change because uh, small and medium-sized webcasters that were webcast only were, uh, until the end of 2015, able to pay a percentage of revenue. Which could have been zero. royalties, which could have been zero. There was a, basically a minimum payment. So for those who had the zero, they still had to pay something. Right, right. but that something was a very affordable thing very affordable. as a hobby. Right, because so many of these webcasters really are hobbies or they're, they're almost like community broadcasters, but they may not have the same kind of infrastructure uh, that like you know a KPFA, KBOO, WRT has. And then in the 13th hour of 2015, new rates came down and those rates were were much, basically much, much, much higher, higher where they have to pay per song they play times the number of listeners they have. So basically, the more popular you are, the more listeners you have, the more you have to pay. But even stations with relatively small numbers, where maybe they only have like under 100 people listening, 
uh, every, any given hour still saw their are seeing their rates go up by a factor of 10. And now as near as you can tell, as we can tell, um, there are a lot less people webcasting, a lot less radio stations that are uh, streaming on the internet uh, as there were before. Yeah. So one big reason for that is Live 365, which was a platform that provided this service, provided webcasting services, and would collect these royalty payments on behalf of the uh, the webcasters, um, went out of business. Yeah. Shut the door on January 31st, um, bringing with it yeah. maybe about 5,000 stations, not just in the U.S., and, and some of those stations already had were hosted elsewhere and just kept their Live 365 feed. Some were big enough that they were able to make a jump. Some were, were actual uh, non-commercial stations who don't have to pay the, the, the same royalty rates, who pay a lower rate, so they were often able to make a different deal. But many, many stations went off the air. Plus, we get reports. The thing is, is there's no like central uh, you know, uh, database, right? The FCC has a database of every every licensed broadcast station, there is no licensing agency for internet radio. So we don't know exactly how many have gone off the air, but we right. get reports kind of every day that, that they're, that they're Gosh, shutting down. No one knows how big it was and no one knows where it's gone. I know. Fascinating. It, so it, that's everything we just mentioned has been, we've talked about in the past. Yeah. So and what's this new? happened over, over basically January and February. What's new is that the actual decision from the copyright <laughs> royalty board was finally released. You could finally read the real reasons 200 pages why this happened as opposed to just knowing that it happened without having it in words 200 pages i've not read it all yet it just came down this week copyright royalty board which is a did you mention is a part of the library of congress yeah and it sets the rates it it that's that's how you know how much it costs to stream a song on the internet and now they now they have their decision in writing. Yeah. And so it's made up of judges. So these are actual administrative law judges, okay, who who uh, work on the copyright royalty board. And, you know, so it is essentially from that standpoint, it's like a legal proceeding. And sure. so when they release, you know, this this decision document, it's like a legal brief. So it's 200 pages because judges are very rarely brief in their briefs, so to speak. Um and I've, I've tried to focus on the things that are most important to try and kind of illuminate this. And the reason why this is important, why this is news, is that when they made the decision in mid-December of 2015, we basically got like the cliff notes, right? We got like the press release, which highlighted that what we learned is that th- there was no rate set that was percentage of revenue and that everyone was going to pay. It must have been so confusing for webcasters. That, exactly. And, and there's a lot of people who are hoping – Hoping against hope that the release of this document would maybe change things a little bit. And and let me not – I'm not going to bury the lead. It doesn't. <laughs> They're still confused or, well, or despondent. <laughs> I don't think confused. So at this moment, okay, there is no confusion. Mm-hmm. It clarifies utterly that there is no percentage of revenue option for small and medium-sized webcasters. Okay, so, so there is a brand new regime. So we do know this online. that this is the regime, and at the moment, there is no change planned. And just to get give you a sense for this, because I, I think we we haven't always laid out kind of the background here. It's important to understand that the Copyright Royalty Board, what's it's in charge of, is setting what they call the rates for non-interactive services. Okay, so it's not like it's not Spotify, where you can play what you want, right. When you want, it's for a service where essentially you you can't make a choice, and Pandora counts. 
Because even though you can sort of say, I want a Beatles station, you can't say, I want to hear Can't Buy Me Love. But Pandora was not a medium or small webcaster. No. Pandora was a, it's a big webcaster. Enormous one. Yeah. But so it's they're all paying the same rates Pandora. now. Oh. <laughs> there is, right. This is the difference. There is no exception. Okay. Right. So it's not that all of a sudden small and medium sized webcasters have a new rate. What there is, is there is no distinction. Pandora pays the same rate as so uh, oldies station that has 20 listeners. Right. They're all paying this rate. Um, that's, that's what happened. Um, and it's not really a decision by the copyright royalty board that put this into effect. What it was was the expiration of a law which specifically set new rates for small and medium-sized webcasters. And that law expired December 31st, 2015. That was that 2009? The Webcaster Settlement Act of 2009. But a lot, what a lot of people have been wondering okay, is, well, why didn't – the copyright royalty board pay any attention to small and medium sized webcasters, right? And because in the past they were part of the agreement. In the, yeah, in, in twenty oh nine they were well in twenty oh nine they were not part of the copyright royalty board's decision. Uh-huh. That's why there was an act of Congress. That's why there was a law. Live three sixty five, which represented de facto so many of these webcasters, had been active in these processes before. They were markedly absent in twenty fifteen. So in a lot of ways, small and medium-sized webcasters did not have a representative. Now, buried in the footnotes of this decision is note that there were at least two small webcasters who had uh, noted their intent to be part of the proceedings to, to so basically, which means submit a, a document. And this is new information for you. Cause we, at first, um, or at, when we were talking about this topic at the beginning of the year and, uh, the last, no, yeah, the first episode of the new year, yeah. we started talking about small and medium sized webcasters and we had no idea whether or not any of them, uh, it appeared as though no one had a seat at the table and right. that's why this went exactly. forward without, their input. Right. So but it seems as though that, that there was at least two, one of whom uh, was not able to con- – did not actually submit, was not able to continue to um, to, to uh, have a part, and I don't know why. So we're, we're investigating that. Um, another did and submitted some documentation requesting much, much lower rates mm-hmm. than was being proposed by even Pandora. Um, there was a question from the judge's – sort of, you know, materially, can you substantiate it? And there was no answer. So, um, and this is a much larger medium-sized webcaster. So that's basically what we know. And this is in the footnotes, okay? This is in the footnotes. It's not in the main part of the document. So that's what we know about anyone attempting to be part of this um, in terms of who would be a small or medium-sized webcaster. Um, So we know that that's about it. And there really, I mean, you know, there is no lobbying group. There is no National Association of Small and Medium-Sized Webcasters. And what's also important to know is that you have to be a webcaster, have, a, have an actual interest in an internet station to participate in this. Hmm. Okay, so this is not like a court trial, and it's not like other government agencies. There's no so-called amicus brief. An amicus brief is, you know, it's a friend of the court brief. It is... 
I care deeply about this issue, even if I'm not a party to the issue in a direct sort of way, and I'm going to submit my thoughts. So, and, and this is this can be common in, in FCC proceedings, for instance. It can be common, certainly in court documents. Right. In so, court so we could imagine um, an organization that that cares about the internet or, or creativity, you know, submitting an amicus brief. But they could not in this case. It yeah. would not have been accepted. So so if Radio Survivor, if you or I right. had decided hey, to Hey, we're one of brief, those organizations right? that cares about the internet and creativity. Yeah, but because we are not webcasters, uh, we would not have not been able yet. to do so. Not yet, yeah. but we would not have been able to do so. <laughs> um, Sorry, we are not webcasters. <laughs> <laughs> but we can dream. Yeah. Um, so that that's basically the thing we know. So these rates are are going to persist. And then the question is, okay, so we know now definitively from the Copyright Royalty Board that these new rates that are set that you pay per song, per listener, right, for every song you pay, you pay a royalty rate. Um, the question is, well, it, what's the likelihood of this changing, right? Because we've had these settlement acts in the past. Um, and the answer, I have to say, is we don't know because it's complicated, unfortunately. Um, and what the next kind of shoot a drop that we're waiting for is that we have to wait for the rates to be published in the Federal Register. Okay, That is the actual date at which these become law, which these are actually in effect. And this because, is true for all uh, government agencies. Because we talked to somebody that works at one of the businesses that help tiny and medium-sized webcasters pay their bills. Right. And, 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 uh, Streamlicensing.com. And it was clear that, uh, it was clear that they weren't 100% clear on what was happening because it appears as though no one was 100% clear on what was happening. But, but their advice was, we're going to get a good rate. We're going to get a rate that makes sense. It's going to be higher than what it was at the beginning yeah, the, of 2015, the, the, and, and, and but it's it not going to be as bad as what you think it is. And it, it wasn't clear that they were waiting for this document to be released so much as that because there's been a, some kind of settlement or deal made in the past, they're sort of betting that mm-hmm. that will happen again. And why the date of the Federal Register— It was a reasonable way to look at this weird situation. Right. I mean, because the other way is to panic and, <laughs> and shut down, I suppose. Yes. Um, the reason why this Federal Register date is important when it gets published in the Federal Register is because that's also the date in which one might challenge the rates in court. Oh, so okay. because they are not officially in in effect until that date, that you can't file suit to challenge them. I, I see. So so they the rates took effect, but they're not official. Right. I mean, so they will be retroactively in effect for all intents and purposes oh. to January 1st, but kind of that you're right. That is the, again, this is sort of the vagaries and you're sort of this, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so right. I may be This has never been not vague. This. I've been sort of yeah. paying attention to this issue now for 10 years, what it's like to play a, play a song right. on the internet legally. And it's never been- right. It's it's always clear as mud. And again, to just be completely clear, this does not apply to low power FM stations. It does not apply to college stations. It does right. not apply to public radio, community radio, and and this particular one does not also apply to Clear Channel right. or any commercial radio stations that are streaming their main uh, station signal. Right. But as you've said in the in previous episodes when we have talked about this, what it does impact are these very uh, special. Mm-hmm. Uh, not entirely well uh, uh, publicized, but also 
like a like a grassroots, like a bubbling up at the roots yeah. of people trying different experimental radio stations um, legally. Yeah. And now it's become much more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That landscape has become a little bit more rough. Yeah. I it's wrote not, a piece. The seeds are not going to sprout as easily. Yeah. I wrote a piece in Radio Survivor, which we will, which I'll link to in the show notes uh, at uh, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, where I sort of hypothesize what this risk doing is creating basically new pirate radio. So for pirate internet. Exactly. Yeah. Pirate so streams. for like, you know, now going on to like nearly two decades, one of the big counter arguments of like why pirate radio broadcast terrestrial piracy isn't needed, right? Has been, well, just go on the internet, right? Anyone can start an internet station. Mm -hmm. It's, it's cheap and anyone can do it. So why take all the risk with being a, a, uh, a terrestrial pirate? Why not just be, uh, you know, be a regular internet broadcaster? And, and some pirate stations have done just that. And now, when you can't afford it, mm. when it when now ostensibly it could be as expensive to be an internet broadcaster as a terrestrial broadcaster, at least with LPFM. Now it no longer seems like an alternative. And that may mean some people will just simply go away. They will not be broadcasters, which is, which is sort of a loss in sort of diversity. And there will be some who will look for ways to circumvent the collection of royalties. Um, and we won't get into, you know, methods or anything here. I'm not trying to give advice or anything, but right. you know, it, in the same way that people figure out ways to, you know, see last night's game of Thrones without paying for it, they will also find a way to circumvent detection in the same way that, that I think terrestrial pirates often circumvent detection and keep broadcasting, even though what they're doing is by the letter of the law, um, not permitted. Yeah. Interesting. So a couple more notes that I think that are kind of important for perspective here. So I know a lot of small and medium sized webcasters are specifically upset with sound exchange. Sound Exchange is the uh, nonprofit organization that is charged with collecting these royalties on behalf of performers, artists, and labels. And part of its role is it advocates on behalf of these artists at the Copyright Royalty Board. Right. Um, and because it's an advocate of artists. It's a relatively new organization. Yeah. It, it also collects royalties. It collects royalties for things that are streamed on the internet as well as satellite radio, as well as uh, those funny cable channels that, that people have that Correct. are just radio stations, basically. Yeah. It does not collect royalties for Spotify with regard to its on-demand. That is not covered by the statute, meaning Spotify, to exist as it does, has to make those contracts individually huh. with all of the labels Okay, that for, of, of its music. But SoundExchange is a... Is a it's a big boy. It's a big boy, world. yeah. And and it advocates on behalf of the artists. So it, of course, advocates for higher rates at each of these proceedings. And a lot of small and medium-sized webcasters were like, well, why don't they recognize us? Why didn't they advocate on behalf of having lower rates? Oh, also, the internet radio streams of uh, community radio stations pay to SoundExchange. Everyone. Now. Everyone with That's everyone important. pays to SoundExchange. Yeah. Right? It's just that this time that that hasn't changed well it changed a little bit it just didn't go up in, in a significant way it did change a little bit and i actually wrote a little bit about that uh in a low power fm watch right. so a couple of weeks you were, ago you're saying because it's easy to see sound exchange as as, as a bad guy, a bad guy. because because they're demanding 
more they're money asking for more money for artists from, and, from and people who don't have a lot of money. What's difficult to to see in these, you know, I think, especially if you're a small webcaster, is the fact that you know the vast majority of the revenue comes from commercial radio, Pandora, Sirius XM, and, and a lot of these cable systems. So, what when Sound Exchange is sort of advocating for these higher rates? Well, you're advocating against these large, very, you know, very large corporations. I'm going to say profitable, but the fact is they're not. <laughs> but one would argue that at least in, in when it comes to terrestrial radio like Clear Channel, iHeartMedia, it's not because of the royalties that they're not profitable. Yeah. Or, <laughs> right? But many large businesses. large businesses with enormous revenues. Right. Um, that not, is what not non-commercial radio stations, right? right. Well, and non-commercial radio stations have their own proceeding or have had their own settlements. So what we're talking about is this small, tiny class of stations of internet stations that are de facto commercial because they're not nonprofits. If that makes sense, right? Sort of the law makes only one distinction: Are you a nonprofit or not? If you are a nonprofit, then you qualify. For much, 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 much lower rates. Right. If you're not a nonprofit, then you pay the higher rate. And for, and so it's sort of this accident that we have this whole class of stations that sort of more or less are nonprofit because they don't make money and they may not be incorporated. They may not write. They may be what we would call sole proprietorship. But because they're not nonprofits – they now have to pay this higher rate. And really, it's unfortunate. I'm not going to argue on behalf of Sound Exchange, but I understand how making that differentiation at the Copyright Royalty Board may not be top of their list, may even not be in their best interest. Yeah, gosh. So, yeah, it's up to somebody else to advocate on behalf of this yeah. other thing, and it these may tiny not, hobby webcasters. And they may not actually have the authority – to individually sound exchange. Yeah. Sound exchange to make another deal because right. of the fact that there is no separate class by law. Right. So back in 2009, when Congress stepped in and had the authority and made a new deal, um, they made a class that specifically allow and said specifically sound exchange may negotiate new rates with this class of webcast. And that was back. That was, that was after a very long uh, and large public relations and lobbying campaign. Yes. So, and the other part that I think is important as background is to understand that by law, the standard for setting these rates is willing buyer, willing seller, as it's called. Effectively, that's market rate, right? And so the Copyright Royalty Board has to take into account any other contractual deals that might have been out there that were uh, a Pandora for instance, is paying royalties directly to labels. And this happens. So what the Copyright Royalty Board sets are rates that are the statutory rates. They're the default. Okay, so that is so that if you start up an LPFM and you want to stream, you're not obligated to go enter into a contractual relationship with uh, Universal, uh, with you know Sony BMG or any of these big labels, you can just simply say, I declare that I exist. You file some paperwork and you begin paying the royalties. However, Pandora, Clear Channel, iHeartMedia, they're all free, or so are you or, you or me. We're all free to go strike another deal. Right. We're free to go to the labels and say, hey, can we find can, you know basically a lower or different rate? 
And, you know, and often it's for incentives, such as maybe we'll play your music a little bit more. Yeah, this is why I think Pandora sounds different these days Um, than it did in the initial year. But these deals then are evidence. So for in for this proceeding in terms of where that rate should be set the 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 judges look at it and say well if if uh, iHeartMedia struck this deal for this amount of money then that is a rate where for which there is a willing buyer and a willing seller so that is a rate we should use in making our determination mm. and that's exactly what happened this time around so the rate that commercial terrestrial stations pay went down in part because iHeart could show it had reached these other deals with labels to pay less. And that is something which we know just from, from the record that sound that, that, uh, that sound exchange is not happy about. So, because it forced down that rate. And so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not at sound exchange. I don't know what they're going to do, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're not considering a suit to challenge these rates. So, if they are, if they are thinking about future action that might uh, that might in order to get the rates, especially that commercial radio pays up, mm-hmm. if they go strike a new deal that's for small webcasters, there is a risk that 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 can be brought into court and say, "Look, here's another willing buyer, willing willing seller deal oh. for a much lower rate." And huh, it's another thing to point out here. It's a big chessboard is that pandora and sound exchange both proposed in this last proceeding that there be an available percentage of revenue option so not specifically for small webcasters but across the board and the copyright royalty board rejected it basically said no the standard basically these deals that happen have all been Per song, per listener, that seems to be the market standard. There's not a strong argument for this percentage of revenue standard. So we are just simply I'm rejecting that out of hand. Of course, the rates that Sound Exchange and Pandora uh, proposed on that percentage of revenue were wildly different. <laughs> Pandora suggested 25% of revenue, and Sound Exchange uh, suggested 55% of revenue. But nevertheless, <laughs> that was rejected outright by the Copyright Royalty Board. So that is where things lie, right? So it, it fills in the picture a little bit more, right? And it gives us a sense, a little bit better sense it, that I think, you know, this is my opinion, that I don't think anyone has it out for small and medium-sized webcasts. They got stuck in the middle. That they are tiny. They get stuck in the middle. They don't really get paid attention to. There once was an, or a large company or relatively large company that advocated on their behalf because essentially that company was, you know, all their customers, you know, a very large percentage yeah. of their customers were small webcasters. And because of their own problems in funding, that company went out of business, at least as part of it. And now there is no representative. And so it doesn't mean it's right. And I still think it's a problem. And I really hope that there is a solution out there that can help small and medium sized webcasters continue to exist while through paying royalty rates that are reasonable sounds, and, and, and we're not like, alone it sounds like they need a a way to band together and have representation in this yeah. giant playing field right and no one quite knows how that will happen because in a way it's it's not as simple right 
uh, because it's such a large and amorphous yeah. group of people with I, not I'm going to argue who don't have a lot of money and probably have often divergent interests. Yeah. That the that uh, one operation that maybe has thousands of listeners might feel differently from an operation that has twenty or thirty listeners any given hour. And trying to find that commonality of purpose would be difficult or, or argue on behalf of it might be difficult compared to a National Federation of Community Broadcasters, which has participated, or uh, College Broadcasters Incorporated, which has, has, has participated, where those the interests of those stations are just a little bit more uh, consistent or, or shared. Plus, you know who they are because they're all licensed broadcasters. <laughs> so it's not hard to figure out who they are. And of course, you know, they, uh, their member organizations are, you know, the, the, the members of these organizations choose to be members, but, um, for the most part, in many cases, um, more than their membership can sort of enjoy the fruits of their labor, provided they qualify as like a college station. So we'll continue to see the, so the next thing we're waiting for, if nothing else happens in the interim is, uh, the publishing of these rules, the new royalty board decision in the federal register. We'll see that'll kick off a clock and we'll see if any lawsuits are filed or there's any additional action, or maybe there'll be action in Congress. If, if there's a lobbying effort, there are petitions. We'll, we'll link to those, um, right. uh, from our show notes at radio slash podcast. And there is, um, a website put together by the future music coalition, which is right now just gathering people's contact information for when a strategy becomes clearer um, to help mobilize, whether that strategy is perhaps in Congress or perhaps it's in, in some other venue. Um, and we'll link to that as well from our show notes at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Yeah. So if this is an issue that, that, that moves you, that you care about and you want to know, um, you want better answers to all of these questions or you want better, different questions asked, please reach out to us and let us know what you are thinking about and what's what's missing from this equation that email where you can uh, speak out to us is podcast at radiosurvivor.com and one note we want to make before we hear from matthew is as we mentioned last week we would love to turn this into a radio show We've had uh, many inquiries from non-commercial stations of all types, community radio, college radio, low power FM, asking, you know, can we air this? And we've said yes, but then the fact is it's not a consistent 59 minutes or 29 minutes. It's not quite ready to be put into a broadcast schedule. We'd love to have your help in doing that. Yeah, it would take about it would take a, another couple of hours or so to get it to conform to a radio right. clock. And then we'd also like to be able to take advantage of services to help distribute it and, yeah. and, and make it available. And, and none of this happens for free. Um, we could really use your help with that. So we need to get to a number of $500 a month in our monthly giving from our Patreon campaign. And this is a campaign where people sign up and you pledge to give one, five, 10, 15, a hundred, three hundred dollars a month uh, to Radio Survivor to help us cover our operations. You'll note that we don't have any ads in the podcast. Uh, we no longer have any ads on our website, so we are <laughs> effectively a non-commercial service. Uh, we rely on our listeners and our readers to help us do what we do. And right now we're at about two hundred dollars, so it means we have three hundred dollars to go. And the great thing here is that I know that if everyone who listened to this podcast gave a dollar a month pledged it right now we'd be at 500 we, we'd, we'd surpass it we'd be way past 500 it's that simple 
So if you can afford a dollar a month, that will help us turn this into a radio show. It'll help us then keep this program sustainable. And why it's good to be on the radio is it can spread the message a bit more. More people can understand this background on radio. We don't think it's so esoteric. We don't think that it's something which needs to be hidden. And part of community radio and and sort of the spirit of community radio in all of its forms is this opening up, right, of the studios, of the microphones, of the airways. And we think that understanding this is actually its tools, tools for people to advocate for low for, for small and medium-sized webcasters, advocate for low-power FM, advocate for college and community radio in all sorts of ways, whether it's it's with their, their you know, volunteering and working or whether it's legislatively or in all sorts of other ways. Yeah, I think like uh, the next segment that we're going to have on, on the program right now where we're talking about the 20-year anniversary of the 1996 Telecommunications Act, um, understanding why the radio landscape sounds the way it does today and how that relates to uh the history and what really happened yeah um it demystifies so much and it makes it makes what we have on the radio right now seem a lot more uh special but also um now i totally get it i totally understand why i care about these stations and why these other stations uh really started to uh not speak to me there was there are reasons that were happening behind the scenes uh, 15 years ago that started to make radio seem a lot less uh, cool. And that me. are still in effect today. Yeah. And that the FCC is obligated to review regularly, biannually actually, although they're way behind. So it can change and it could change for the better. It can also change for the worst. And this is something we want people to know about. Yeah, not just and not just us and not just the the hundreds of listeners we have now. We some, would like to yeah, spread this far and wide. And by making this show available for free to a college or community, low-power FM station, um, or a religious broadcaster, if it's, if it's something which they feel they want to uh, expose uh, their listenership to, we'd love for that to happen. Please help us do it. Go to patreon.com slash Radio Survivor. Uh, you can also get there from uh, radiosurvivor.com slash support. Just $1 a month from you gets us that much closer. Yeah, thank you so much. And now let's uh, hear from our friend Matthew Lassar. Yeah, Matthew is going to talk to us again about the 20-year commemoration of the passing of the 1996 Telecommunication Act, which lifted the cap on radio ownership, and uh, the result was a vast uh, homogenization of the radio landscape. We've talked about it now on the past two episodes because it's such a big story, and really it still has a huge impact on what radio sounds like today. And Matthew Lassar, radio historian, wanted to add to that picture. Sort of an interesting little footnote um, regarding the um, author of the Telecommunications Act. His name was... Larry Pressler, he was a United States senator, and he was an enormous foe of public radio and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And in 1995, in January of 1995, he sent an infamous letter to the chairman of the board of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and to the presidents of um, PBS, um, NPR, 
the Pacifica Foundation, the Children's Television Workshop, and just about everybody else in public media um, at the time. And it was this really long letter. And one of the things that was most famous about the letter was that it asked the question, how many people at National Public Radio previously worked for the Pacifica Foundation? Um, and this was taken almost immediately to be a kind of a witch hunt kind of a letter. Yeah. Have you, you now or have you ever been? Have you now or have you ever an been? An employee of Pacifica. employee of the Pacifica Foundation. And it took place in the context of the Republican Party repeatedly attacking the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for giving money to the Pacifica Foundation. At KPFK in Los Angeles, um, there was a lot of programming um, being broadcast, or not a lot of programming, but a significant amount of programming being broadcast. And in my opinion was, how should I put this, unpleasantly weird. Uh, that's probably as, as gingerly as uh, all kinds of strange ethnic nationalist, white people are mutants, really strange um, uh, stuff, which the um, Wait, which are you, that's not hyperbole. I'm sorry to put uh, you on the spot, but that sounds so funny. What white people are mutants? Yeah, no. One of the, the there was a famous speech called about the white people are mutants speech, which was on KPFK back then, and um, uh, you know it was it, I I certainly didn't want to hear it on on the Pacifica stations. Not sure that I would describe it as hate speech, um, so much as I would describe it as unpleasantly weird speech. That was how I um experienced. But the Republicans ran with it. And they um, first tried to get Pacifica cut off from the CPB, from CPB money. And then when they couldn't do that, because the CPB, you know, to its credit, um, said, you know, the First Amendment, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't punish stations for broadcasting things we don't like. Um, After that, they tried to get Congress to cut the Corporation for Public Broadcasting by the amount of money that it gave to Pacifica Radio or something along those lines. And they, that, that got all derailed. And then Robert Dole went, on, went to a public broadcasting meeting and he called Pacifica Radio hate speech. And it went on and on and on. This had a real sort of um, chilling effect upon um, the whole public broadcasting um, uh, sector. And it, it scared um, them. It, it, scared, it, scared, it scared the daylights out of them. Um, and it also encouraged a trend that the CPB was already moving towards, which was um, uh, to encourage community radio stations to centralize their broadcasting and to take more satellite kind of fare and not be as local as they had been. This was a, a general trend which we associate with a, um, a program around this time called the Healthy Station Project. And it really did kind of uh, – it really did – that those kind of fears really did move uh, the CPB to encourage that kind of direction. Definitely encouraged them to move in that direction at Pacifica Radio where they basically started thinking, how can we encourage Pacifica Radio to uh, more centralize its, 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 its broadcasting decisions so that there will be less programming that the Republicans can use to attack us with? 
So that kind of dynamic was definitely taking place around this time. So that's that's pre-1996 Telecommunications the, the, Act. This letter I'm describing was sort of the culmination of all that scaremongering that went on from about 1991 to about 1995. And then came the Telecommunications Act of 1996. I wanted to um, move on from the, um, the question of community radio to some general comments about the Telecommunications Act, which I think are important, if, if that's okay. Sure. Um, I really enjoyed what Chris Terry said. That was two um, episodes ago. That was two episodes ago. Um, I wanted to add that Clear Channel didn't just attack, or in my opinion, Clear Channel didn't just attack um, the idea of localism in radio. It went after something even more radical than that, I think, starting in the 1970s. It, huh. it, you know, almost from the very beginning of Clear Channel, it went after something even more radical than that. I think that Clear Channel really went after the very idea that its job was to broadcast to audiences. That is to say, people who are listening at this, who experienced, who are listening at the same thing at the same time, who experienced themselves as listening to the same thing at the same time, and are in dialogue with each other on various levels about that. Uh, that's what I mean by audiences. From the very beginning, the people who were running Clear Channel realized that they could end run, that they didn't have to broadcast to audiences in order to make money. That if they consolidated enough, and even before the Telecommunications Act of 1996, they were already mobilizing to consolidate. It, there were previous acts which, up, which upped the limit of the number of radio stations you could own um, even before the Telecommunications Act. And in addition, the FCC was being very lenient about local management agreements. So that Clear Channel was already on the way to this sort of three-pronged approach to broadcasting. The, you know, the first thing is consolidation. Um, the second thing is a, um, a very aggressive form of, um, av- of, of, of advertising, which um, merged advertising with programming, in which the programming itself was advertising for the people who were giving Clear Channel stations money. It was less real content as much as it was just sort of ongoing infomercializing of, of of the content and the third was the um cutting costs um thus earning clear channel the term the sobriquet um cheap channel um in many many quarters tellingly clear channel famously dropped arbitron said we don't even care anymore how many people are listening the radio stations became less about audiences and more simply about making money, whether it was local or national, it no longer um, was about audiences anymore. And what the Telecommunications Act did above and beyond the, um, you know, the, 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 the nat- ending any national limits on how many radio stations um, um, a, a company could own was that it um, – it, it abandoned almost completely or it, it, it certainly began the abandonment almost completely of what can be described as the utility model um, for um, the regulation of broadcasters. It basically said anybody can get into anything now. There are no longer any technological domains in which um, uh, a certain technology is going to be associated – um, you know, a certain industry is going to be associated with a certain kind of um, of kind of media. The broadcast industry with television, the broadcast industry um, with with radio, uh, telephone 
companies with um, phone calling, um, cable with you know wired television. Now, cable industry could get into telephone service. Telephones industry could get into TV service. Anyone could get into anything, and it redefined the concept of public interest. What was the public interest? The public interest was no longer um, thinking about what electronic media could do for the national character, for example. Instead, and I, you know, I'm going to quote here from um, the statement which um, uh, Tom Wheeler just made about the Telecommunications Act. Tom Wheeler is the current head of the FCC. Chair of the FCC. Telecom Act of 1996 was a kick in the pants, he said in this new statement, that focused on accelerated trends that had been percolating in both congressional and FCC policy debates. With the Telecom Act, Congress moved from percolating to a full boil the shifted policy to encourage competition rather than the previous micromanagement of scarcity. What? Yeah, no, it's important to encourage competition rather than the previous micromanagement of scarcity. Now, what they meant by the micromanagement of scarcity was is that the idea that was um, inherent in the regulation of broadcasting, that not everybody could be a broadcaster. Therefore, broadcasters had to broadcast in the in the public interest because not because it was a privilege to be a broadcaster. Therefore, they had to follow certain rules, things like, dare I say it, the fairness doctrine that, you know, that there need to be equal access, um, that, that there needed to be public service announcements. These, this whole sense of um, broadcasting as a, current, uh, as a public service. And that and it's important they, for people to understand just in case they don't have a long uh view of the history of this, that if you're new to learning about what public service means, that this isn't just a set of like ethical, moral uh, considerations. Radio stations should do this. They might do that. These were requirements at one time. At one time, these were requirements. And he's he's calling this the micromanagement of scarcity. Now, the argument was, is that we no longer need to do that. Because the idea is to just encourage competition, let everybody get into everything. Let telephone companies get into TV, let telephone companies get into, you know, and, and let cable companies get into telephone service, which, of course, morphed into um, broadband. The mobile Internet, too. The mobile, the mobile Internet. If you let everybody get into everything, um, then you are um, going to get all the great things that you've had before and you're going to get more of them. Mm-hmm. But I think that what happened with the Telecommunications Act is that, is that as a society, we lost any sense of the importance of audiences. Instead, what we, you know, we got this crisis in radio, and as a result, consumers began rapidly moving towards uh, technologies that allowed them to, on an individual level, um, become listeners, um, even before the internet of the Sony Walkman, I think, uh, hmm. you know, anticipated this concept of, um, of, of personalized and individualized listening. And now, of course, lots of people say, well, you know, broadcast, you know, broadcast radio is, um, largely, um, uh, you know, in crisis because of services like Pandora. But the problem with Pandora is that I don't think that Pandora, that, that, that Pandora broadcasts to audiences. I think that what it broadcasts to is a kind of a hyper-individualized um, 
uh, mass, you know, a consumer base, none of whom listen to are listening to the same thing at the same time. Thank you, Matthew. And and I think that that point, that last point that Matthew made about sort of that difference between your sort of individualized station that you make and and tailor to your taste, but that is sort of automated versus radio, as I think we talk about it and love it here at Radio Survivor is important. That difference about radio made by a person for people. What's interesting to me is how we talk about it as community radio, and that means a non-commercial radio. But it, uh, if our memory goes back far enough, there was a time that commercial radio also served communities. And the 1996 Telecommunications Act didn't wasn't the day that radio that serves communities was destroyed, but it certainly was and let's one not, of the watershed moments. I don't ever want to draw that big line in the sand. Yeah. There are commercial stations and there are people point. in commercial broadcasting who take that notion of public service seriously. Right. Many but, of them are doing so in conflict yeah. with their corporate overlords. Swimming against the tide. They're swimming against the tide. Um, some maybe are owned by smaller companies that are more communitarian right. in their outlook. But now they're in the minority and, and in part yes, because in the of the clear channelification. Exactly. Of the I think that's an landscape. important point. And that's why we think small and medium sized webcasters are important <laughs> because <laughs> back, yeah. even though, you know, because they are, they are tailoring those stations to audiences, to listeners. And, and, and the interesting thing, right, is that there, you know, you can go through and find dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of small webcasters essentially playing oldies, right? And you think, well, who needs oldies, right? You've got some oldies station AM or FM, but yet what's happening is that it's a very specific curation right that this one person or group of people do it's you could make the same argument about indie rock well why do you need multiple indie rock stations except for people who listen to indie rock there's this big difference between you hear what you hear maybe on the more uh, cutting edge commercial alternative station what gets played on late at night on a college station yeah. or someone who's just way into some very specific subgenre there's those good people uh, that loved their college radio polka programming right. in New Jersey that could really benefit Massachusetts. Oh, sorry. Uh, in Massachusetts, that they could really benefit from uh, a nice little web right. stream, and that it's very specific, and it and and that is all about audience, right? It is all about a community of people, and whether that community of people is is physical in a place, it's geographic, or whether it's virtual and spread out all over the globe, it's still a community. And I think that Matthew so put like a great point on what we so love about radio and what propels us to write radio survivor and to uh, do this podcast. Yeah, so I just it reminds me, it put reminds an exclamation me of, point there. It reminds me of why Matthew loved that turntable FM stuff. Yeah. Because all of a sudden it had brought a different community of people together around a shared musical experience. Where they were playing, where it was people playing music yeah. for other people. It was like radio, but it was like the internet. It was a very exciting, uh, yeah, it's all starting to make sense to me. We're having grand themes are coming together around Radio Survivor. <laughs> Synthesis is it. happening. Well, so I'm going to turn to some news uh, again that that uh, came up in the last week, and it was news about SoundCloud. Yeah, this came across my feeds. There was a very huge, um, what's the right word? Hyperbolic headline is probably how, if anybody found out about the sound 
SoundCloud news at all. It was a headline that was uh, SoundCloud doomed. Right. And SoundCloud is a service which we use to distribute and host our podcast. Yes, we do. Um, but principally, it's a music service where, uh, you know, basically musicians are uh, encouraged to post, host, and share yeah. their music. You, so get about a, a, you get about an hour for free, and then if you want to have more than an hour's worth of audio that's shareable on the internet, you're going to, you're going to want to pay them a little bit of money. Right. And, and I think they also offer an opportunity to monetize so someone can listen for free, but have to pay to download. So it's sort of the YouTube for audio, only it doesn't have the overwhelming uh, financial power of Google (laughs) behind it. Um, And the big news, why, why was the big news there? Why did they saying SoundCloud is doomed? What was the, uh, what's the point behind it? They are, they're having uh a, they're in debt. They're in debt. Yeah. So there was a report, you know, basically comes out of out of their uh, public filings uh, that SoundCloud lost seventy million dollars over the course of twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen, and the board of directors wrote in a missive that the company is facing material uncertainties. Material yeah. uncertainties. Um, you know, and so people are uh, that goes from while well, they're in all this debt, so they're doomed. I want to point out. That I'm, I'm the debt worried. that iHeartMedia has <laughs> outclasses the debt that SoundCloud has by an order of magnitude or more, right? It is significantly greater than what SoundCloud has. But yes, because SoundCloud has become a, a preferred host for many podcasts, because there are so many independent musicians of the sort that that are on college radio and community radio and low power FM and on independent uh, internet stations uh, because it hosts them. I mean, we, we take it seriously. Um, so I dug in a little bit and I think that the doom prophecies are a little misguided. That is, it sounds like third hand uh, blogging. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to get eyeballs by making uh, it a work proclamation. I ser- if somebody wrote a less hyperbolic headline for their sound cloud, <laughs> A blog post that wasn't shared with me right so so kudos to you hyperbolic headline yeah. writer and not that i you know and, and not that i am necessarily uh a cheerleader for for soundcloud but it's worth noting that they raised uh some capital this year already to help structure their debt so it's something which they're paying attention to they're working with major labels so that uh major label music might be able to be hosted there in a lot of different ways um it's so interesting that they're um they're not the podcast business that i imagine them to be for me uh that's i live or die by my soundcloud account right now i put so much of my creative energy uh when i create radio and podcasts um that's my platform it, yeah. it goes on the soundcloud and then i share platforms. it right there's lots of platforms for podcasting but they but they're they're primarily they see themselves as a music sharing yeah. platform yeah, but they do yeah with podcasting as, a, as kind of a sideline um but, you know, so I want to address this because I think this is an, an important moment uh, to kind of reflect a little bit on Internet history, Another if you will. Another teachable moment for Paul moment, if you will. Radio Survivor. Um, which is that for anyone who relies on a third-party service, whether it's SoundCloud or YouTube for that matter, um, to host your stuff – it's sort of inevitable. You kind of need to do it uh, with regard Twitter to audio or Facebook. Yeah, Twitter or Facebook for audio or video in particular. Right. A service like SoundCloud or uh, or or YouTube or Vimeo, Tumblr, make your life easy. 
right? It's a lot easier than trying to come up with the, all the hosting on your own and, and, and make your own video website. Right. Yeah. It yeah. makes it easy to host. And two, the social functions, it yeah. makes it easier to find because and the people app, use these. The fact that it works on your phone. Yeah. Uh, SoundCloud, you know, for me, that's that's one of the There's reasons the, I'm on yeah. SoundCloud is that I want I want to be able to let people hear the podcasts I create on their phones. And yeah. you can't just do that just by mailing them an MP3. Right, right. So there's all these conveniences, and, and it makes sense to avail yourself of them. But to understand that you're when you're using a third-party site, it is a third-party site. That your stuff being there is contingent on that company either, one, staying in business, or two, staying in that business, you know, for any number of reasons, because... This has happened before. Yeah, if you, if you've been on the internet for the last twenty something years, you may have already lost something you love. Right. There are. There was uh, GeoCities was an early <laughs> build it yourself, you know, uh, platform. But in a time when it was very difficult to create your own website, for many people, GeoCities is where they first created sites about their hobbies. Yeah. Many many people about radio. Right. A lot of junior high school students made their first website exactly before they grew up and. But then it was acquired and shut down. And and it, it's sort of like – and with very little notice, in fact. Right. Um, MP3.com was this great site that I used uh, in the late 90s. This, so this is about the time when the MP3 format became practical, right? So that it was getting easier to make an MP3 and to share an MP3. And MP3.com – Internet speeds were getting a little bit faster, so – so it wasn't you weren't just waiting for your photos <laughs> Not for to minutes load. And minutes and minutes, yeah. yeah. And MP3.com was like the SoundCloud of its day. It yeah. was a place where uh, anyone could create, you know, basically music, you know, and, and, they, and it was supposed to be original music, and put create their own page on MP3.com and share it. And it was wildly successful. Um, in fact, at the time, now you have to think. And around about 2000, they were moving, delivering four million files a day to about 800,000 unique users a day. And sort of by YouTube standards, it doesn't seem like very much, but we have to take into account that was 16 years ago when many people still had dial-up at home, when they did not have mobile phones, right? And they certainly didn't have mobile broadband. Uh, that, that's a lot of music being shared. Um, and uh, it went away. I remember my first cable mode back then. <laughs> and the thing is, it went away. Now, it went away uh, in, because mp3.com launched a service called mymp3.com in which they offered uh, what was kind of called a music locker. And the idea is that you could say, well, hey, mp3.com, here's all my, here's my mp3 library that I, that I own. I ripped it myself. That I ripped myself. Off of my CD collection. I would love to be able to listen to this like at work or other places or just kind of keep it for safekeeping. And the idea was that you told you gave that list to mymp3.com, tell them, yes, those are mine, that they're ripped, my ripped, and they would sort of mirror it for you. Um, major labels disagreed about the about the legalities of the way they were doing it. Without getting into the particulars of the case, what happened is that there was a lawsuit in 2000, and uh, a judge found against mymp3.com. And you know, so they found a separate settlement, and ultimately, mp3.com got bought by Vivendi. Uh, French, which is basically Universal Music Group at this point, uh-huh. uh, and uh, then later was sold to CNET. What happened to everybody's MP3s? CNET shut it down because we are now after the dot com crash. 
And it one only guesses that CNET said, well, well, how are we going to make money hosting all this bandwidth and these millions and millions and millions of MP3s? And the answer was they did not know and instead shut down the service. So your advice, Paul, my advice is, is for creative people who use the Internet to communicate to never fall in love with one platform. Don't fall in love with a platform. Fall in love with your stuff and make sure you keep it. And so that means uh, practice good backup strategies in your office or home. Uh, more multiple copies. The Don't YouTube, just make one. Backup. Your videos on YouTube mm-hmm. might not be there tomorrow. And at least what's nice about YouTube is they'll let you download it. Yeah. Even if you did SoundCloud like a, a screen well. recording. Yeah. They will let you down do so. I Keep know it sounds copy. archaic. Yeah. Burn it to a DVD. Burn it to a CDR. <laughs> keep it on flash drives, but don't keep it on one. Have multiple copies. I also want to say it might be a good choice to use the Internet Archive. Right. So as long as you are willing to take your creative output and um, share it freely, because once you put it on the Internet Archive, you're, yeah, you're, you're reclassifying it as, as Creative Commons yeah. uh, work. Which is uh, no big deal, maybe for the vast if you're not of otherwise selling it or licensing it to make money. Which for so much of this stuff, I think that was not the case. People were just thrilled to have a venue and ability to share it. Yeah, um, to really think about the Internet Archive. Um, there was a uh, very long, very old uh, service called the Internet Underground Music Archive, which huh. was launched in 1993. So this is before there was such a thing as the World Wide Web. That was basically a text-based site where you could upload underground music. And it, again, was in the same mold of here, you're sort of an independent artist. Here's an opportunity for you to upload music and for other people to find it. Much more difficult to use before there was a World Wide Web. But it existed from about 1993, and it was purchased by eMusic.com, which, is, which sells MP3s essentially in 1999. But eventually, um, it disappeared from the internet by 2006. Luckily, though, in that interim, by 2012, due to the efforts of a few people, all of most of that archive got archived at archive.org, the Internet Archive. Hmm. So that music, that storehouse of underground independent music going back to 1993, most of it is now at archive.org. But that required a few people basically going, oh, no. <laughs> this stuff may go into limbo and never be found again because it's on some server in s- yeah. somewhere or in some hard drive in some desk drawer you know somewhere. I learned this lesson. Let's rescue this. I learned this lesson. It must have been about 10 or 12 years ago because I was just a, a huge fan of a particular podcast. Loved it. And one day, the creator of that podcast no longer had the archives of that season of his show available on the internet anywhere at all and i had just taken it for granted that i could listen to that show every time i wanted to by clicking and then one day it was gone and i realized oh this is not this is not my personal library the internet and things do not exist by default everything on the internet is hosted by somebody some organization, a computer that or is on some somewhere. company who is paying for it to stay there. So if it's on YouTube, it's because Google continues to pay for YouTube to exist. Yeah, it's an investment in the future of 
Exactly. Eyeballs. So keep your stuff. <laughs> keep it. I mean, put it in a safe deposit box. I am not kidding. Yeah. Put it on a hard drive, put it somewhere else, keep it so that it always exists. And then think about some of these organizations like Internet Archive, which has been around a long time and is organized around this. So there's a, there's a decent chance it's going to stick around for a while. Consider them as a repository. Yeah. Another repository for radio, I just want to point out, or podcasts, I think, is Radio for All. Right. They've been the around. A Info Radio Project, which is the longest lasting radio archive on the internet. It is completely independent, completely non-commercial. It's intended basically for community radio style content. Um, I want to say that's a great place also to share stuff, especially, and again, it's, it's stuff that you explicitly would like to share with other people specifically for radio. But if you're a radio producer, it's a great place. They can also though use your help because it is a really grassroots Really volunteer kind of operation. I know that they are currently looking for donations. So go to radio number four all.net. We'll put it in radio the show notes. All. That's a great place to find great community radio style content, great place to share it. And uh, if you can spare them a few bucks, let me just say that uh, that would be a great place to, to spare a few bucks. Well, let's uh, go into our last segment here. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm really excited to hear the second part of the history of. Haverford College Radio with Jennifer Waits. Welcome, Jennifer. Hey, thanks. So as promised last week on the last episode, we had laid out the case for why the college radio station at Haverford College, WABQ, is one of the most fascinating stations in college radio history, in part because (laughs) it was founded uh, so early in the history of college radio, which was in 1923, and the fact that it was founded by students and student-run um, that early. And it was enormous, or not enormous uh, physically, but it could be heard for a thousand miles away. Could this possibly be true? It's true. Yeah, those those early days of AM stations, um, there weren't necessarily these restrictions. Yeah, so. so amazing. And then other things that I learned from the, our last conversation was that the college radio station was on the air prior to the technology being available for recorded music to be played over the radio. So they were primarily, uh, if they played music, they played live live broadcasts from on campus as well as talks. And you know all of this because Haverford, which is your alma mater, school you went to, keeps amazing records. Yeah, they actually have... A collection of archives related to the col- the various college radio stations that have existed on campus over the years. So they have incredible photos from the 1920s, from the early days of WABQ. They have various um, ephemera, so um, scripts that people mm. um, created from the 1940s, um, meeting minutes uh, from the radio station. And and maybe even more interesting to me or more useful, um, they have archives of yearbooks and student newspapers, and that's where that's where students wrote up really a history of the station every year. You know, in the yearbook, there would be an entry where they would describe what had happened during the year, and then student newspapers would chronicle you know every detail of of the accomplishments. So. So I've been combing through all of those different types of archives, you know, student publications, as well as 
meeting minutes and program guides and anything I could find. There are a lot of cool tidbits that I've run across researching this. I published an article in the alumni magazine at one point, And then after that was published, so many alums wrote to me. Oh, that's And it was just incredible getting all these emails, like especially, I don't know, maybe four or five people from the 1940s wrote to me. So, you know, they're quite elderly. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And they had vivid, you know, recollections, some of which were contradictory. Like, you know, there were a few people from around that era who had slightly different stories. But it's fascinating. And lots of stories about almost flunking out of school because they spent too much time at the radio station. <laughs> like, you know, it really is like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Wow. And so the last last time we spoke, we kind of left things at a cliffhanger because I'd asked you... I mean, you had, you described in great detail the the very exciting founding of the station and those those first uh, the first decade or so of its history, and then I asked you how how the station culture developed when those founders uh, moved on and and new students took over running the station. Yes, it was definitely a cliffhanger. So the station started in 1923, and as I mentioned, some of you know, one of the real masterminds of the station was a freshman. So he was graduating in 1927 and, and other people who were instrumental in the station were graduating around that time. And at the time, right around that time, there was a lot of competition for, for airspace on the dial. Mm -hmm. And they had a very powerful transmitter, like I mentioned, you know, that could be heard for at least a thousand miles in every direction. And so there were commercial stations who were kind of knocking on their door, uh, mm. wanting to get a bigger slice of the radio dial. And actually, there's a great book about the early history of public radio by Hugh Richard Slotten. And he wrote that by 1923, competition with commercial stations was inhibiting the establishment of university stations, especially in urban areas or in regions such as the Northeast, where companies set up a number of high power stations. So that's okay, so exactly what's new. happening. <laughs> and, and so what happened at WABQ in Haverford? So um, maybe kind of what you would expect in this environment where... Um, you know, universities were starting to worry about college radio's days being numbered. The students who founded WABQ were about to graduate. Commercial stations were seeking out, uh, you know, a bigger slice of the dial. And so the WABQ was approached by a commercial radio station in Philadelphia, and then they eventually decided to sell the station. So the station was sold and removed and moved to the top of the Lorraine Hotel in Philadelphia. And there was a lot of consolidation, but um, the, the WABQ license is now essentially part of what is currently a CBS station in Philadelphia. Oh, still around. And so yeah. now uh, we know how this story develops if it takes place in, in 2015, but what... What do you know from the historical record of how, how the student community reacted to their station being sold? Well, so this was a student club that opted to sell the station. Wow. Um, so the students made the decision. Haha, -ha, that's that's a new wrinkle because these vis-a-days, when we tell this story, it's usually the regents of the school who, yeah. who decide. 
Yeah, the students made the decision, and um, and some of the students who founded the club actually got money from the sale. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, and then some of the remaining money, it sounds like it went into a, a fund that was later available for future radio students at Haverford. So they uh, they used part of that fund, you know, to help establish future radio stations. Um, but you know, after after this, as part of the deal, um, this commercial station agreed to let Haverford students broadcast over their station for a certain amount of time. Okay. So there was that opportunity for students to continue to be on the air, but it, it was called the, it was a weekly Haverford radio hour on WFAN. Huh. Fascinating. Well, where to next in the story? So... You know, <laughs> after a few years. So initially, I think they tried to take advantage of this Haverford Radio Hour. Um, you know, so some there was some small amount of interest in in doing those broadcasting opportunities. Um, but I think that sort of faded out. Um, students continued to do coding classes, like Morse code. <laughs> uh-huh. And then... You know, a few years later, it's kind of the radio club is sort of listed as a defunct organization, which is really sad. Um, <laughs> nebulous and defunct. In in one of my articles, I talk about nebulous sort of this and defunct. This sort of period. Um, I think that might have been a headline in one of the yearbook <laughs> entries, actually. Nebulous and defunct. Um, so wireless projects continued, and then they did things like they would send free wireless messages for students and alumni to any part of the world. So they were doing that like in the early 30s. And then by the late 30s, something really interesting started happening on college campuses where uh, students were figuring out ways to launch carrier current stations. So kind of like a pirate station in a way. So in their dorm rooms, there were some some kids who um, figured out how to create these stations that other people could hear in the dorms okay. over AM carrier current. And so uh, there were a few attempts at this in the late 30s, and then eventually an official Haverford carrier current station launched in the early 1940s, and that was initially called WHAV. And then that morphed into um, the call letters were eventually changed to WHRC, and that station existed as a carrier current station on campus until I think the nineties. So there was actually a much longer history of campus only carrier current radio at Haverford and a lot of interesting stories with that. There were some um, students figured out how to do live remote broadcasts of political speeches. They did broadcasts of um, athletic events in the 1940s, they were part of one of an early, it, w- it was said to be the first intercollegiate, um, kind of an intercollegiate network of local Philadelphia college radio stations. So the idea was that they would share content um, and air it on each of their stations. And so that was in like the mid-1940s. How, how was content shared in the 40s? How would it have been shared? Yeah, I know. It's I'm not even sure because, um, you know, it was a big deal when the station got its first tape recorder. Uh-huh. 
it's possible they they could have had I haven't found information about this, but it's possible that they had a way to record transcription discs and you know that's how early radio was recorded. It was recorded on a turntable. Yeah. And I think I mentioned in a previous podcast about um I saw some transcription discs at a high school radio station in Portland that had 1940s programs on it. So right. those were recorded off the air onto a kind of an oversized record. Right. And then all I could think about for days and days and days was, um, how do you listen to those things? How does one <laughs> on in 2016 a, yeah, hear, I mean, hear a transcription <laughs> disc from the 1940s? Yeah, you have to have a large, a special turntable. I've seen uh, them. Neat. Um, so things continued, you know, like over the years... Students have figured out different ways to broadcast at Haverford. Um, when the carrier current system kind of crashed and burned, um, it was around the time that they were able to set up webcasting, um, you know, by the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. And there were various travails. I mean, it's so funny, like delving into the history of Haverford College Radio, there were so many ups and downs. Yeah, it sounds um, like a very um, scrappy I think scrappy might be the right word. Like people kept scraping together yes. the, the means to broadcast. Very scrappy. Um, and in fact, Lorenzo Milam, community radio pioneer, Lorenzo Milam, um, who has helped found, who helped found so many stations, he actually uh, went to Haverford and he had go. already, he'd already worked in commercial radio before that. But um, I interviewed him about his experience at Haverford and he was, Basically saying, like, it was one of the most godforsaken, you know, sta- station environments and huh. everything was always breaking down. And when he was there, the station was located in the attic of what's now the music building. And it used to be the union building. Um, so it was this, you had to walk up these really tight staircase uh-huh. into the attic. Um, so I can only imagine, especially in the summer, it was probably you know, over a hundred degrees in there. Spiders. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I know there was flooding at various points of the station's history because looking through um, the LP collection, you'd see, you know, evidence of water damage. So uh, you're going to, you are presenting this story or in part, you're presenting this on, on uh, February 23rd at Haverford college. You're going to, you know, tell, tell a room full of fascinated individuals about the history when you get to the present day, like how do you plan to frame things for the for the vision of the future at Haverford College and what's going on with radio there? Well, in the process of, of working on this project, I think when I started working on the project, the station might have been defunct. Um, you know, there was an online station mm-hmm. and they had some very bizarre hacker attack um, and <laughs> so had to take the station down. It was it was just typical, like, you know, they've had lightning strikes that have taken the station down, then like a crazy hacker attack that was kind of the death knell. Huh. Um, but as, as I was working on this project, I got an email from a Haverford College freshman who wanted to get the station started again, and he did. And he's now one year out of Haverford, almost two years out of Haverford. So he got the station up and running and... Um, Another freshman. Yes, <laughs> And so I got to see a couple years ago when I was on campus, I got to see the station um, and I'm going to see the station again when I'm there giving the presentation. And 
and students from the station have told me they're going to come to the presentation as well. So, you know, perhaps they'll provide some updates. It's, it's an online station um, and it seems to be doing well. And I think, you know, after, when I initially started researching the history of radio at Haverford, I think I was initially disappointed that things were not the same as they were when I was a student there. Mm. But in the course of all of my research, I've come to realize there were so many ups and downs and the station has had to change course and change its delivery system so many times over the years that it's no different now really than when it first started. Like they, they just keep finding the most appropriate way to reach students, but, but there's still enthusiasm and excitement for the idea of radio. It's just in a different form than when I was there or than when WABQ was there. Yeah. So it, so it's cool. It's cool to like, you know, understand what's going on now and understand what was happening in the past and appreciate the connections between it all. That's great. I think I think that's a wonderful place to leave it today on College Radio Watch. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Jennifer, uh, for sharing that with us. Um, boy, it's such a wonderful way to to wind up this rich, rich, jam-packed show that is fundamentally about love for radio. And uh, thank you for listening to us spending a little bit of of your week. We don't take it for granted. We so appreciate the time that you take to listen right. to and our show. Speaking of which, uh, we not only do we not take for granted the fact that you listened, but we don't take for granted your opinions. Uh, we would love to hear from you about about uh, your thoughts on the program. You can email us your thoughts, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can also uh, comment on uh, this podcast episode on the blog on radiosurvivor.com uh, there are forums where you can uh, sound off on larger ideas even if they weren't inspired by this particular episode go visit the forums at radiosurvivor.com and check that out because because that's what they're there for that's great and uh, please subscribe to the podcast you get it every week if you use a podcast app of any kind if you're on an ios device you can do that at itunes and if you click some stars along the way, we'd, we'd, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you for listening, everybody. <laughs>